This is Sam Anderson, lead pastor at Central Church. Thank you for listening to the Central Church Podcast. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. And to keep up with everything happening in our faith community, visit centralchurch.cc. This new series that we're starting uh, called Redeemed is going to be really, really cool. And so we have this sort of overarching theme verse for this series that I want us to kind of keep in the back of our minds. We're going to be looking at different texts and different uh, stories about redemption throughout scriptures um, each week. But the theme verse for this series is one that you may have heard before. It's John 3.16. Is that a new one to anybody? Or is that, I mean, that's, that's on like athletes, like eye things, whatever those are called, or they write them on their shoes. And not to be confused with Austin 316, if you were a wrestling fan in the early 2000s. It's different than that. It's John 316. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And you say, well, Sam, what does that have to do with being redeemed? The word redeem is not even in that verse. Well, Jesus came to this earth to redeem a broken humanity right? I mean, that's what it's all about. Jesus came to this earth to bring reconciliation between a broken humanity and a holy, complete God. And so Jesus is redemption. Jesus is redemption. It's taking what used to be dead and bringing it back to life. And so as we go through this uh, series, we're going to look at a couple of stories that are redemption stories that people find themselves in, um, you know, really terrible situations and life situations and things happen to them that are beyond their control. And, but at the end of each of these stories, there's this redeeming quality and this redemption factor that comes through. And so as we look at these different stories, um, it's very encouraging, yet it's very challenging as well. And so we're hoping that as we look at these stories, it will encourage and challenge you in your story, in the story that God is telling through your life. And so we're going to look at some different um, characters in the Bible. And for you, before, prior to this series, these, these might just be characters that you've heard about in kids' church or you've heard about people talking about them, but you've never actually dove into their story and seeing what the scriptures actually say about them. And so we're going to spend some time looking at Bathsheba. Many of you have maybe heard of Bathsheba before, David and Bathsheba. We're going to talk about that today. And uh, we're going to look at the story of Joseph and how Joseph went from betrayed to benevolent right? Joseph goes through this crazy story. You may have uh, seen the movie uh, King of Dreams. Rich uh, loves to sing the song. Rich, will you just sing us a little bit of that song really quick, please? Oh, your voice is hurting all of a sudden? He'll walk in. Listen, we'll all, Nick, you might want to turn me down a little bit because I'm about to sing. Um, he'll walk in. We'll all be sitting in a room and he'll just walk in and go, you know better than I. Have you guys ever seen that movie? That's Prince of Egypt, right? Or is that, no, that's Joseph, King of Dreams, right? Was that, was that it? Was that the, the jam? He'll come in and just sing that and scare the crap out of all of us. We're all like working and he'll just, you know the way, and like just go off and it's, you guys have not seen that movie? Come on, DreamWorks, like circa 1999? No? Nothing? Okay, that's your homework. Go home and check that junk out, okay? It's good. But we're going to look at the story. Check it out before next week because we're looking at Joseph next week. Um, we're t- looking at Zacchaeus. Right? You guys may know him from the song in Kids Church. You guys remember that? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He grew up in a sick. Man, none of y'all went to, y'all are all going to hell, huh? None of y'all, none of y'all know the Zacchaeus song. Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Right? Yes? And he said, come on down, because I'm going to your house. Is it today or for tea? Which one? 
today. Okay, we used to say, going to your house for tea. It's like, we're not in Britain. I don't know. Um, and then we're going to look at Paul, the apostle, who went from a hater and a persecutor to a love dealer and a church planter. And, and look at these redemption stories. And again, like I said, hopefully we'll be challenged and we'll be encouraged and we'll be inspired by the redemptive power of the Lord in their lives. And so before we get into the topic today, I, I came across this clip on YouTube of these two theologians talking about redemption and talking about all things redeemed. And I was like, okay, I'll just give like a paraphrase of what they're saying, and you guys will get it. But then I was like, well, it might just be better to show you these guys, because they're like super smart and say a bunch of words that are hard to comprehend and everything uh, about redemption. And so it's just a 30-second clip. So, Tim, if you want to go ahead and roll this, I can't talk about redeeming and redemption without thinking of, of, of this. Check it out. Right now. Hit play right now. And make sure the volume is up right now. Yeah. Yeah, that one right there. Uh-huh. This is good. Yes. Man, power, powerful. Am I right? Powerful. What's going on? Is this not happening? Spinning wheel of death. Yeah, that's Apple products. Where's Bob when you need him? Okay, well... Are we not going to th- show the theologians? Okay, well, we're just going to, I guess, move along. People on the podcast are going, what's going on right now? Um, so essentially, it was a clip of the theologians, Harry and Lloyd. And when they're sitting there, and he's sitting on the moped after he just sold all of his things and spent all of his money, and he says, just when I thought you couldn't be any dumber, right? And then he goes, you totally redeem yourself, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Yes, okay. It was going to be awesome for me to show you that, but now it's just lame because I'm telling you that. But I can't think of talking about redeemed or redemption or redemption stories without thinking about you totally redeemed yourself. And so just keep that in your head as we talk about all these Bible uh, characters and stories and whatnot. But listen, redemption is tricky. Redemption is incredibly tricky because as we'll see in this series, redemption requires a lot of forgiveness. And forgiveness is really hard. Forgiveness is cool in concept, and forgiveness is cool, like the idea of forgiveness is like, oh yeah, I love to forgive. But the reality is, redemption's really, really intricately locked with forgiveness, and forgiveness is really, really tough. And so many times we don't experience the fullness of redemption that we could because we're struggling with the forgiveness part that's sort of latched to it. And so as we're talking through these stories and we're listening to the story of Bathsheba and the victimization and how horrible of a situation she finds herself in, and then Joseph and the situation that he finds himself in, and Zacchaeus and his plot in life and sort of his labels from society, and Paul and the way that he has been brought up and the way that his worldview works, when we think about this and we think about where they've been to where they're going, I want you to keep in the back of your mind how much forgiveness it must have taken to get from point A to point B. Because as we're working through our own redemption stories, forgiveness is clutch. Forgiveness is key for this to happen for us. And so um, I want to pray together, and then I want to spend a few minutes looking at the story of Bathsheba. But I do want to give a little disclaimer uh, for people who are maybe listening later on the podcast. Because I know some of you listen to the podcast in the car, and maybe there's kids in the car with you. I just want to give a disclaimer, and if anybody has kids in here, I don't see anybody. But this is going to be kind of PG-13 content this morning, okay? So if you're listening on the podcast in your car right now and the kids are in the back seat, you may want to put your earbuds in and maybe not play this over the open air radio waves because 
we're going to talk about some, some pretty intense stuff. So let me pray, and then uh, we'll jump right in. God, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, thank you for who you are and what you plan to do with us today. God, I pray that as we open your word, you would allow it to speak truth to us. I pray this morning that you would remove me from the equation, but use me as an effective mouthpiece for your truth. God, allow the story of Bathsheba, the, 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 redemptive, the redemption story, to speak truth to us and to illuminate areas in our life that we can change and we can grow and we can t- continue to pursue and follow you. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Cool. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, or you can pull it up on your tablet, your phone, whatever. But listen, I would encourage you to read this story. I would encourage you to check it out for yourself, okay? This morning, I'm going to give you sort of like a paraphrase. I'm not going to read word for word and go through, you know, verse by verse. I'm going to tell you the highlights of the story. But I would encourage you to read this story because there's a lot of nuances in the text. There's a lot of, like, cool little things you can catch when you're reading it, and you're like, oh, I, oh hey, I see what they're doing there. I see what they're saying there. And it all kind of comes together that it's really, really cool. So I would encourage you to, to mark it down. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 is where the bulk of this story of David and Bathsheba takes place, okay? And so st- it starts out at the beginning of chapter 11, and it talks about David being home from battle. And they started off by saying, well, all, well it, it was the time of year when all the kings were away at war, but David's at home. Right? So all the men are out fighting battle. They're all out fighting, and the kings are out fighting, and they're doing their thing. It's a wartime. But David, the king, the leader of them all, is at home. That is incredibly dishonorable in that culture. He should have been out there with his men. He should have been out there leading in the forefront, doing all this stuff. And so David is not where he's supposed to be. Now, that's a whole other sermon series of saying, you know, bad things happen when you're not where you're supposed to be. Right? When your head's not in the right space, when you're physically not in the place you're supposed to be, bad things happen, right? It's easier for bad things to happen in that way. But that's a, another sermon for another time. So David is at home. And it, the, the story goes that David sees Bathsheba bathing. And so you're thinking, okay, what's going on? Does he have like a high-powered telescope? Or how does this kind of work? Is he like a total creeper or just kind of a creeper? What's going on here? Let me explain a little bit. So David is at his palace. So the palace is going to be on the highest point of the hill uh, of the community. Right? His house is going to be the highest house in the whole area. And his house is going to be, so it's going to be positioned that way, and it's also going to be the biggest house. So if he's on the top, he's got a great vantage point to see a lot of the city and to see a lot of the people. And so it's not that he had, like, eagle eye vision that he can see into Bathsheba's bathroom watching her bathe, because that's not the way it worked in that culture. Women didn't have the luxury, typically, to bathe in their own homes. They had to bathe in public bathhouses or in special, like, bathing areas. Or if they did have a, a place to bathe, it was typically on the rooftop of their house because it was so hot in their house, right? And here's another thing. Women didn't bathe like we bathe now in our, men or women, didn't bathe in the way that we bathe now in our Western culture. Many of us bathe naked. Hopefully you bathe naked. If not, you can. You're allowed to, okay? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going to leave all that alone. They didn't do that uh, back then. When women would bathe in these public bathhouses and all this stuff, they would wear like these wraps or they would wear these like garments that were light, they were linen, whatever, but they would bathe clothed typically because it was in a public place. And Bathsheba wasn't just bathing. It wasn't like, oh, it's Tuesday, it's bath time. She was going through a ceremonial ritualistic cleansing bathing process, which happened um, seven days after the end of a woman's period, they would go and have this 
cleansing process that they had to go do. To, it was like a ritualistic thing to, to cleanse themselves from that. And so this is what Bathsheba's doing. A lot of times she gets a bad rap. It's like, oh, she's this evil temptress out there to get da-. No. She's doing what she's supposed to do, how she's supposed to do it, where she's supposed to do it. Right? And then David's all like Creeper McCreeperton over here. He's like looking down. He's like, ooh, you know, and scoping in on what's going on. And so David sees her bathing. And David sends for her. He's like sends for information about her. He, t- he tells his dude, he's like, hey, see that girl there? I want to know what's up, right? And so he's the king. So the guy goes, finds out, comes back and reports to David. When the guy comes back and reports to David, it's interesting how he describes Bathsheba. He describes Bathsheba as the daughter of Eliam and the, the wife of Uriah. Now, this is important because what this does is this shows Bathsheba's um, standing in society. She comes from an honorable father and has an honorable husband. The two of these men are both in the top 30 warriors of David, right? These are like highly regarded guys. These are like high-profile dudes. This is not like she's some temptress, like, hey, you know, I'm a nobody from nowhere trying to tempt the king. No, this woman had a standing in society. She was the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. She was somebody. And so David hears that, and he doesn't care. He sends for her. He's like, tell her to come to the palace. And now again, when the king says come to the palace, you go to the palace. It's not like, hey, would you like a cup of tea? He's like, drink this tea or die, basically, is the idea. And so he's like, hey, come to the palace. He sends for her to come to the palace. So she comes to the palace. And then he says, hey, um, brown chicken, brown cow is going down, right? Brown chicken, brown cow, right? You know what I'm talking about? He takes her and he lays with her. Um, and, uh, and again, that's not the kind of thing of like, hey, you want to do this? Let's do this. Hey, you know, no. It's like the king says it, you do it or you die. Right? And so Bathsheba is called to the house and made to lay with the king. And so this is like a rape situation that takes place here for Bathsheba from King David. And if that's not bad enough... She goes home, and I'm sure she's feeling filthy and betrayed and abused and taken advantage of and manipulated and just feeling all kinds of all kinds of everything. If that's not bad enough, scriptures say that she became pregnant as a result of this occurrence. And so she has to send back to David and say, hey, uh, I'm pregnant. You know, I have a kid inside of me because of what just happened. And so David then begins to freak out because he knows. He knows. He knows that he should have been out with all those dudes fighting and doing all this stuff. He knows that he's messed up. And so what does he do? He tries to make it better by doing more messed up things. How often does that happen to us? We get in a messed up situation. We're like, oh, oh. And then we just start messing things up more, bigger and broader to cover up our first mess up. And then we end up in this whole, whole big jumbled mess. So David calls for Uriah to come home from the battlefield. And he calls Uriah to the palace. And he says, hey, man, listen. You're doing a great job at battle. Like, what a jerk, right? You're doing a great job at battle. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and lay with your wife, man. Go sleep in your bed. Put your feet up. Let her cook you some food. You guys just go have a good night, and then you can go back to the battlefield. I just want to reward you. And Uriah's like, uh, no. Like, that's completely dishonorable. I would never do that. I would never go lay with my wife in my own bed in my own house while all my comrades are out fighting in the fields. Like, that's... That's like a low-down, dirty move, and I'm not doing it. And so Uriah sleeps at the city gates. And David knows this, and he sees this. And so David's like really starting to freak out now. He's like, oh, man, 
what am I going to do? So he brings Uriah back. And like any logical person, he liquors him up, right? He gets him drunk. And he says, listen, dude, go home with your wife, right? Hey, we're having fun. Bottles are flowing. Go home with your wife. And Uriah's like, still, nah, man. It's, it's not going to happen. And so Uriah sleeps at the city gates again. And so by this time, David's freaking out, right? Because he knows there's this child on the way. There's no way Uriah is going to claim this because he's not going home. It's, he's going to get found out. And so what David does next is crazy. He writes a message to Uriah's commanding officer. And he says, listen, here's the plan. I want you guys to go to the fiercest part of the battle. Go to the city where you know it's going to be like the most crazy. I want you to put Uriah right up front in the battle lines. And then I want you to pull your guys back but leave Uriah there. And so essentially David signs off on this dude's death. Orders for a killing of Uriah. And so the commander, obviously, he's not asking questions. It's the king. What the king says goes. And so they do this. Uriah dies. Word gets back. And so now Bathsheba is faced with the loss of her husband as well. And so she enters into this mourning period. And after the the mourning period takes place, scriptures tell us that David takes her as his wife after that. Which, again, when the king says he's taking you for his wife... Not a lot of option there. Not a lot of, you know, dialogue to go back and forth. And so what I find really interesting, and this is why I said you should read it yourselves, because even after this happens, it's kind of cool. Scripture still refers to Bathsheba, not as Bathsheba, but it refers to her as Uriah's wife. Even after David has taken her to be his wife, it's not David. No, that's Uriah's wife. It's like a slight at David. It's like, yeah, we know you're a jerk. We know what you did. She's still Uriah's wife, right? It's, it's this really cool nuance that takes place, but think about this. Think about this. So Bathsheba goes from being this upstanding citizen with an honorable father, honorable husband, meaning she had social clout, meaning she had friends, meaning she had a life, meaning she was connected, meaning she had her thing going on. And in an instant, she's called in by the king. She's put in this rape situation. And then she becomes pregnant with this child as a result of this rape situation. And then her husband dies in battle. Can you imagine what's going on here? Can you imagine what's going on in her heart? And not even, and then after that, it, it gets even more crazy because the child that she has as a result of this illegitimate, illegitimate situation here dies, becomes ill and dies. And the prophets are saying, hey, this is because of David's corruption and sin that this child, it's, it's not going to happen. And so then her son dies. So she's had this situation where she's been completely abused and manipulated and taken advantage of. And then she loses her husband, so there's death and mourning in that. And then she loses her child on top of it. Man, I mean, that's heavy. If, if, if any of us in this room experienced even a fraction of that, many of us have experienced a fraction of that, but if we experienced this much in this amount of time, in this sort of, it would be overwhelming. I mean, can you imagine the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions, the pain, the betrayal that you would feel if you were Bathsheba? It's absolutely astonishing. And then, but here's the deal. The story doesn't end in 2 Samuel. That's, that, it's crazy because they shift gears. They talk about how Bathsheba then, after she's David's wife, has like three or four more kids or whatever. And then they stop talking about Bathsheba for a while, like the rest of 2 Samuel. They start talking about Tamar and all these other different, you know, situations in the life and rule of David. 
And Bathsheba doesn't come up again until 1 Kings chapter 1. And so, but in 1 Kings chapter 1, there's a big time period that has gone by here because it last left off that Bathsheba had some kids. One of those kids' name was Solomon. And so it talks about the birth of Solomon. But then in 1 Kings chapter 1, it starts off talking about how David is old and he's ready to die. He's coming to the end of his life, the end of his reign, the end of his kingdom, all of this. And so with the help of Nathan, who was the prophet at the time, who was like the king priest, like the pope, I guess, if you would, if you were Catholic or whatever. He's, he's like the main religious guy at the time. And so with the help of Nathan, Nathan comes to Bathsheba and says, listen, Solomon needs to be the next king. And so Solomon is anointed the next king after David. And this is one of Bathsheba's sons with David. So we haven't heard from Bathsheba since the total devastation, destruction, turmoil. And now all of a sudden she's working with Nathan to have influence over David to get Solomon anointed the next king. And so Bathsheba has gone from this broken, tattered, just abused, terrible situation, right? And now she finds herself the queen mother. She's the mother of the king. She was one of many of David's wives, but now she is the only mother of the king. She finds herself elevated to the most powerful woman in the entire kingdom. In 1 Kings chapter 2, it talks about how dignitaries and prophets and all these, you know, really influential political people are coming to Bathsheba as a go-between to the king. They're coming to her and saying, hey, listen, we need to talk to Solomon about this. We want to run it by you, talk through you, uh, kind of get a feel for it. Can you go to Solomon, kind of get a feel for how this is all going to work and all this stuff? This shows that she has diplomatic skill and influence and power in the kingdom. And then in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19, I think this is great. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19, Solomon it, it has this like throne room where he has his throne and the people come and you know he deals with business and he reigns from his throne, right? It's like a big deal, uh, just like the movies and all that stuff. So he's sitting in his throne room in, second, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19, Solomon has another throne brought into his throne room, placed at the right hand of his throne, which is symbolic for this is the most powerful person under me in the entire kingdom. You know who that throne was for? Bathsheba. He has a throne brought in for his mother to sit at his right hand. And so Bathsheba is in the position of power and honor. And she sits on her throne at the right hand of the king who is her son. She is elevated. She goes from the lowest of low and becomes elevated to the highest of high in their kingdom and in their culture. And beyond that. Even beyond all like the physical whatever elevation and redemption and all this stuff, reconciliation that she gets to experience, listen to this. There are only four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Genealogy was very, very important to the Jews and to the first century culture. It's where you came from. It's who you are. It determined who you could be in the future, right? And so in the genealogy of Jesus, there are four women listed. There's Ruth, who was a widow. There was Tamar, who was also a rape victim. And then there is Rahab, who was a prostitute. And then guess who the fourth one is? But they don't use the name Bathsheba, which again, I think is so good. It's like a kidney punch. Uriah's wife is used in the lineage of Jesus. She's elevated in the lineage of the Messiah. And so it, it, it's, it's this crazy turn of events that goes from this, this terrible situation to her being elevated as, as the greatest woman in the kingdom, Right? She, she's she's in, put in this rape situation with David where her dignity 
is stripped away. Her dignity is torn from her. And then her husband is murdered. And so her life is stripped away. Her friends are stripped away. Her home is stripped away. Her neighbors, her neighborhood, everything that she had going on was stripped away from her. And then her child dying. It's where her hope is stripped away. And so she was taken down to the bare bottom. But how did she, it begs the question, how did she make the jump from devastation to redemption? What happened in all those years that the Bible or the history books don't really tell us much about? They don't tell us much about Bathsheba. They don't tell us how she bounced back. They don't tell us how she sort of took strides and moved forward and made gains and grew and, 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 and became this, this most powerful woman in all of the kingdom. We don't know much between the birth and kingship of Solomon. We don't know what happened in that lifespan. But by judging by the end of the story, by looking at the result of how things went down and how they could have gone down, I feel like we can deduce a few things. I feel like we can take away a few ideas that had to have happened for Bathsheba to end up where she ended up, for Solomon to end up where he ended up and how they got there. I feel like we can deduce a few things. I think the first thing that we can sort of wrap our heads around and assume is that Bathsheba didn't allow her pain to destroy her. Bathsheba did not allow her pain to destroy her. You know, it says that she took a time of mourning in Scripture. It says that she took a time of mourning when her husband passed and when her child passed. She took a time of mourning for that, but she didn't stay there. She didn't allow it to destroy her and to paralyze her and for her to stop in her tracks. She took time to be broken. She took time for healing, but then she also kept moving forward. She didn't curl up in a ball and say, that's it, you know, to hell with everything else, I'm going to lay here and die. This is going to get the best of me, and, and that's just it. She took time to mourn and to work through it, but then she kept moving forward. She didn't allow her pain to destroy her. Another thing that I think we can assume happened with Bathsheba is that she didn't allow her pain to define her. Not only did she not allow her pain to destroy her, she didn't allow her pain to define her. You know how we can know this? Because of the leadership of her son. Solomon led with strength and wisdom. He didn't lead with pain and insecurity, right? He wasn't one of these crazy kings that thought everybody was out to get him. He wasn't super insecure. He wasn't super angry. He led with strength and wisdom. You know what this tells us? that his mother's pain didn't transfer to him. His mother's pain didn't transfer to him. And so she, that means she didn't allow that pain to define her. She didn't allow that pain to dictate how she was a mother. She didn't allow that pain to dictate how she was a wife. She didn't allow that pain to define her moving forward in life. Because we can see this the way that Solomon was raised up. We can also assume that Bathsheba chose forgiveness over bitterness. We can see that she chose forgiveness over bitterness because this is evident in the honor that's given to David as king. When she's doing all, having all these diplomatic conversations and she's partnering with Nathan and they're talking to David all throughout. Like I said, read the story. But when she's having all these interactions with David, there is honor there. There is respect there. That can only happen 
if we choose forgiveness over bitterness. It's evident in the peaceful transition between David and Solomon. David laying down the kingship and Solomon picking it up. Because in those days, you know, vengeance was, was crazy. Retribution was crazy. Revenge was crazy. Solomon could have became king and then just dominated David, destroyed his family lineage, lineage destroyed his, his kingship, his reputation, could have publicly humiliated him and all this stuff. But that didn't take place. There was a peaceful transition of leadership from David to Solomon. You know what that tells us? His mother's pain wasn't transferred to him. She chose forgiveness over bitterness. Because if she's bitter, you know she's feeding him one-liners and two-liners while she's changing his diapers, while she's making him PBJ for lunch, you know? You know what I'm talking When you're bitter, it just like oozes out of you, and there's negativity that's just continually spewing out of you? That pain transfers to our kids. I don't know if you know that or not. That when you go home and you talk bad about somebody at church to your kids, that person knows because your kid has an attitude with them for no reason. I don't know if you know that or not, but that happens. And we can see the way that Solomon interacts with David. We can see the way that Bathsheba interacts with David. And we can deduce from that that she chose forgiveness over bitterness. And so maybe you're in here today in your story. Whatever your story looks like. Whatever your pain story looks like. Whatever your betrayal looks like. Whatever your hurt looks like. Whatever your situation looks like. Maybe you're in here today. And you're allowing the pain and the hurt and the betrayal and the situation to destroy you. Maybe you're allowing it to destroy you. Was it fair? No. Did you deserve it? No. But maybe you're in here today and you're allowing it to destroy you. You used to be happy and joyful and optimistic and ambitious and driven and positive. But now all you feel is broken. All you feel is shame and bitterness and anger. And you're sad. You even feel dead on the inside a lot of times. Maybe you're in here today and you're allowing that to destroy you. You carry the pain and the hurt and the betrayal around like it's weights, like it's chains, like it's got you shackled. And it's just destroying every avenue of your life. It's destroying your relationships. It's eating you from the inside out. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're allowing the pain and the hurt and the betrayal and whatever the situation is, maybe you're allowing that to define you moving forward. Maybe you're living as Bathsheba the betrayed or you're living as Bathsheba the abused or Bathsheba the victim or, or Bathsheba the broken and that's kind of your MO. That's what's setting your trajectory moving forward. Your past is dictating your future. Your past has your future with weights around it and chains around it and you're in shackles. And if this is you, bitterness is bound to set in. If you're allowing your pain and your hurt, and your situation, whatever it may be, to destroy you, or you're allowing it to define you, bitterness is set in, and bitterness is going to continue to grow. And I want to challenge and encourage you that you need to choose forgiveness. That you need to choose forgiveness. Because without forgiveness, Bathsheba doesn't last in the palace life. Without forgiveness... Bathsheba doesn't have rapport with David. Without forgiveness, David or Solomon doesn't honor and respect David. 
Without forgiveness, Solomon doesn't become king. Without forgiveness, Bathsheba doesn't experience the fullness of her redemption story. And without forgiveness, neither do you. Whatever your situation is, without forgiveness, you don't experience the fullness of your redemption story that God wants to tell in you. And so this morning, we're going to sing a song here in a minute. And uh, the words to the bridge of the song are so powerful. It says, I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Guys, I want that to be our anthem this morning. From our place of pain, from our place of brokenness, from betrayal, from abuse, from vulnerability, I want us to open up and say, I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Because Jesus is redemption, and we are the redeemed. Jesus is redemption, and we are redeemed. Jesus says that you are not that pain. Jesus says that you are not that betrayal. You are not what happened to you at that party in college. You are not what happened to you at work. You are not failure. You are not the shortcomings that won't let you go. You, Jesus says you are not broken. You are not battered. You are not abused. You are not forsaken. He says that you are chosen, that you are, you are not forsaken. He says that he is for you, not against you. So I want us to sing that this morning. I want us to sing that with all of our hearts, but not only sing it, I want us to walk in that. To say, I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I want us to live in that. So that Jesus can continue to tell the redemption story in your story. Let's pray together, God. Thank you for listening to the Central Church Podcast. We hope this has encouraged you, inspired you, and you experience life change. If you are unable to attend our Sunday gatherings but still want to support this faith community, visit our giving page at centralchurch.cc. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes.